Welcome, friends, to the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm writer Luke Elliott. And I'm filmmaker James Bailey. And this week uh, is a weird one because we are uh, supposed to be off. We were supposed to be off. But then I got COVID. Uh, I was in Florida for a funeral, and I masked the whole time uh, on the plane and uh, so forth. And I still ended up getting it, unfortunately. Um, I'm feeling better now. Um, but because of that, my vacation over the weekend, where I was supposed to be going camping out of the coast, that didn't happen. And I was, we were supposed to record our bonus episode early to get it all done and out of the way so we wouldn't have to worry about it this week. But we didn't do that either because I was sick at the time. So everything's just been thrown into disarray. And then on top of that, uh, you know, half the country lost a basic human right. So there's been a lot that's happened since we last recorded. Yeah, I'm sick of living in historically awful times. I used to look at a history book and say, like, look at all this progress we've made. Isn't that such a such a good thing? Yeah. And, and it just feels like every entry in the history books, like for the last, I don't know, forever. <laughs> it's just we're backsliding in it. Yeah, and and obviously we're two guys, so we're not even as affected by it as women are, and it, it's still devastating to see, uh, just because of the 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 misery and suffering uh, and death that I know that this decision is going to wreak on our country. Um, the, we're talking about Roe v. Wade uh, being being cast down by the Supreme Court, uh, namely three judges that were installed by one twice impeached president uh, to do things that they all said they wouldn't do. It, it's just it's so much horseshit. It's, it's bad. I mean, not to mention like the bad faith appointment of one of them after there oh, was yeah. a deal kind of thing made. It's like you're not supposed to appoint somebody right as you're on your way out. Like yeah. all of these things. It's just it's fucked. And it's clear, you know. It's clear that somebody's cheating. Some, so well, some things are and, happening. And, 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 it, and it lays out the bullshit that is the Supreme Court. Yeah, f- honestly, fuck them. Fuck the... F- I always, you know, historically, you're like, oh, that's supposed to be the beacon we look at. And now it's like, can't fucking trust them, can't can't rely on them to right. do the right thing. It's supposed to be impartial, right? Like, that's the whole idea is that the judicial system is impartial. Yet they are partisan hacks at least recently being appointed by presidents they're unelected and they serve a lifetime appointment it's awful um the whole thing is maddening it it, it's it can't be defended at this point i mean uh the idea that they're impartial is laughable um just reading the decision um i think shows that it is it is it is right-wing textbook stuff is all through there Anyway, um, we have thoughts. We have thoughts. And uh, we just watched The Handmaid's Tale 1990 film uh, that we are going to be discussing on our Patreon episode for this month. Um, It is the original adaptation of The Handmaid's Tale. And uh, I have a lot of thoughts as as we were as I was watching that. We thought it was a good time to to revisit. And sure enough, um, it, it, it dredged up a bu- bunch of stuff. I went and listened to a little bit of our our book coverage, and my God, we were talking about some stuff, and, and it was so prescient. I, I don't know. It was like, you know, we were reacting to the Texas. There was like a Texas ban uh, on, six, uh, I think, up to six weeks uh, abortions for the first six weeks. Um, no, sorry, abortions beyond six weeks. Mm. And then there was the whole uh, bounty thing 
which ended up, I guess, becoming law there. I don't know. Really fucked up. And we were reacting to that. And then I'm like listening now going, yeah, how about all of Roe v. Wade being gone now, guys? Like, you don't even know how bad it's going to get. And we yeah. were talking about like if, if things continue this way and it's like, yeah, they did. They really well, did. And, and like, I, I think part of the like sort of sci-fi premise of Handmaid's Tale, and we're actually setting up for uh, from the vault episode, we'll, we'll touch on in right. a second. But <laughs> but uh, part of the, the thing about Handmaid's Tale when it came out in 85 is it's like this cautionary tale about like what the, the dystopia of what could be and everything. If, th- if we allow like small rights to be taken and things stack up and it's like it, it doesn't feel that fucking far off anymore. It like, really doesn't. It, it, it really doesn't. So we will be talking uh, more about this stuff. And if you would like to hear us talk about it, I know we're just two white dudes uh, and and we're not the ones directly affected by it. But in, in, in many ways, it does hit home for me. Um, I've mentioned before how my wife and I are child free by choice and, you know, just things like that. It, it hits home and uh, we'll talk about it more on that episode. But we are setting up here our epic poo uh, uh, discussion, which uh, strange name when you hear it. Uh, it is for me. It is an essay written by Michael Moorcock, who is another fantasy author, and he is comparing in the essay Tolkien's writing and The Lord of the Rings to Winnie the Pooh, and that's the epic Pooh from the title. It is an epic version of Winnie the Pooh, and it's, it's sort of a takedown and and a discussion of the conservative values and traditional British values that he sees perpetuated in Lord of the Rings. So I thought this is a good one to put out right now as we're, we're diving headfirst into politics and we're, we're getting in there. This is another good one where we talk about the effects of that and, and what that means for society as a whole fantasy as a whole, like, should it be celebrated? You know, both of us enjoy Lord of the Rings. Um, I think in the essay, we both sort of grapple with the uh, arguments being put forth by Moorcock. We have some pushback. We have things we agree with. Um, I will link the sh- in the show notes the essay itself. Uh, I think we'll even say in here that I recommend you read it if you want to like really follow along what we're talking about. But um, I thought it was a cool discussion um, if you don't mind getting a little political with your fantasy. I remember talking a lot about like the subliminal nature to like storytelling and how these things baked into a story might seem innocent, but it can also set up this sort of worldview of its readers and that kind of thing. So yeah, perpetuate harm- harmful thought patterns that can go on to uh, create problems. And so maybe there is something to that. So yeah, hopefully you enjoyed this from the vault episode. And if you would like to hear something all new, do check out our Patreon-exclusive episode on The Handmaid's Tale. If you are even familiar with The Handmaid's Tale as a story in any way, you can listen to that one. It's not like you have to watch that movie, um, and you'll be able to enjoy our, our conversation about it, I think. And we'll be back to our regularly scheduled programming uh, the following Thursday from when this comes out, so next yeah, week. Yeah, which I think we're doing The Black Phone. The Black Phone, so, yeah. So, yeah, nice, hopefully uh, scary, fun horror piece that covers uh joe hill you know stephen king's son should be a good one i'm hearing pretty good things so far at least you know initial buzz so looking forward to that one and enjoy uh we are going to be tackling something a little different this time in our lord of the rings coverage we actually mentioned this essay by michael moorcock and it's called epic poo p-o-o-h and uh, it's sort of an indictment of Lord of the Rings, written by this other fantasy author and, and literary literary critic, uh, Michael Moorcock. And uh, I referenced it to you on the episode, I think, and I tried to sort of briefly summarize it. And we talked about it a little bit. And I said, 
you know, it would really be better to actually have you read this essay and then we could talk about it on a bonus episode. Um, and then we kind of oh. forgot about it. <laughs> but recently we were <laughs> on a uh, another podcast, the That's What I'm Tolkien About podcast. And it kind of reminded me of, of this essay and, and that I did want to mm. touch back in with you on it. So I figured it'd be a good time to, to, uh, to tackle it now. Yeah. I mean, this is sort of, um, in a way, sort of reading this essay reminded me in an analytical way of r- our last project that we just covered on the actual feed. Um, I'm thinking of ending things. Mm-hmm. And the, the idea of like literary versus genre versus and like subjectivity and some of that stuff was, was coming up as I was reading this. Yeah, the role entertainment plays in our sort of everyday lives and our perspective on the world. And, you know, like walking away from it, I do think like like I I remember pushing back against it in the Return of the King coverage when you brought it up and sort of were because because you were giving me the cliff notes realistically. I I just was like very rough. I was sort of just like, (laughs) yeah, I don't I don't know. But like it, it does give you good, a good perspective. And I think it did change my opinion a little bit because clearly this is a person who's way more well-versed in in children's fantasy and epic mm-hmm. fantasy and, and the comparison between the two and um, sort of puts forth examples of what, in his opinion, is great children's li- like fantasy literature and yeah. what is sort of more like uh, watered down. And Yeah, yeah that's interesting. I, so this is my, I think, third time reading this now. It's the second time in full. I definitely skimmed it one or two other times. Um and I feel like I, I've been getting more out of it the more I've kind of revisited it because it does. It references a ton of different authors. Um, uh, it's a 13-page essay, and maybe half of it feels like it's quotations from different works it is, he's yeah. referencing, um, which yeah. is kind of a lot. Um, I felt like maybe a little bit excessive, but um, he's doing it to try and make points. Um, I would recommend if you want to be able to sort of fully follow this conversation to read the essay itself. We'll link it in the, uh, the description for this episode on, on Patreon in the show notes. Um, so you can go listen to it. It's freely available. You can go read it, you know, at least skim it. Um, and, and so you can get an idea because once again, it's hard to really summarize exactly what argument is being made. Um, I think I've, sort of arrived at a point where maybe I could describe it a little better than I did in the episode. I don't know. But I'm curious before I give that, like, I want to know what your take was on like, what he, what do you think he's generally trying to say? What is his like overall criticism? If you could try and boil it down to maybe a few points. I I think his, his, I think he had like two or three, but uh, one of the main ones that was sticking out to me was sort of, he was, he was in conversation showing the contemporaries of Tolkien and showing people who came before and after him people who who did similar things to him and people who do different things to him and showing because he's this beacon in fantasy they're showing the differences showing if he is that influential why is that the case and sort of i think most of the time he's trying to say that tolkien like his writing and and his style and a lot of things like that don't necessarily lend itself to being this this pillar that he's become in the community while also saying you know the conservative role of the story and and like what that represents to the to humanity and like sort of challenging us and what it means to have the status quo remain the same uh forever and ever and ever and um i i mean i would say like for me i i am much more motivated now to i think i really want to try to get us to cover some ursula k Gwynn on the mm-hmm. podcast soon yeah because that's an it, it, he he I think he does a good job of showing 
the comparison between some authors and Ursula K. Gwynn was was Le Guin. one that like I've never read any of of her material, but I am familiar with Ursi a little bit. Yeah, Wizard of Ursi. Yeah. And so I would love to figure a way to 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 somehow cover her on the podcast. But yeah, I think those are the two major ones. Is like the sort of more um, conservative role of the story and, and conservative like, values. Values, yeah, yeah, and then. Uh, the sort of comparison to to other literature and like why why does uh, Tolkien deserve to be on this pedestal? Yeah, yeah, no, I, I absolutely think that's accurate. Um, he starts off by referencing specifically the tone and style of writing, sort of the prose to me, um, and he likens it to uh, Winnie the Pooh, and he says it's it's basically this like fairy tale writing that is considered beloved by like past in like pastoral England sense. And that's another thing that I want to like get across here is that this felt very British. Um, it is, it is, you know, situating it within the realm of British fantasy literature. Um, it references some Americans, but I do think as an American, we're going to have a different perspective on this because the British countryside to us is almost a, mythological land like i know we could go there but like i've never been Mm -hmm. there um so in many ways for us it is like it is something of like the old world whereas for people who live there i'm sure that people romanticizing the countryside in this way might it's just going to hit you differently because you're like yeah i can go there it takes me 20 minutes to get there yeah it's not a mythological world that was one of his points sort of right like the idea that um if you're to go on vacation, you would you, people are much more likely to go on vacation to like a city rather than going into nature. And that was one point where I was kind of like, I mean, that's not a that's not a great pl- like place to stand on because like I love to get out in nature. And I think like that's that that is some of what people are with the whole Shire idea and the idea of a Shire, which uh, I guess uh, two things I would bring up with that is um, the idea of the Shire. I understand Tolkien spending all that time in the Shire and how that represents like sort of his fascination and his want to like retain the purity of the Shire and all that stuff. That part of the story, I definitely agree uh, with the fact that like he's getting into very conservative, you know, straight white men are in positions of power. And so the status quo would be for them to remain in power and like, you know, older men telling everybody what to do, like the wizards of the, of the culture. But, um, the story does go places from the Shire, you know, yeah. and and I wonder because he didn't really address that as much as I thought that he would, because um, it's sort of an indictment on the Shire and not as much on the story fully all the way through. Yeah. Um, and I know we do return to the Shire and I know we like the, re- the the return to the Shire had it been sort of similar, to, more similar to the movie where everything's back to, you know, innocence and the Shire is still the same. That would be one thing, but in Tolkien's version of the events, it's not not really the case. So, um, I, f- I did definitely push back against that in his essay. This idea of like people not like people not being as interested and yearning for nostalgic for for nature because like I I love to go camping. I love to be out in nature, and I find it to be like rejuvenating. Yeah, I'm trying to find that part because I I think he was saying that people who live in cities are nostalgic for that. Right. That's what he was saying. Yeah. And and this idea that they they wouldn't um, those people who are who are nostalgic for the countryside are also would also probably go on vacation to some, you know, European town or something like that somewhere where there is civilization and city. And it's not the not the countryside that they're going to visit when they do have a chance. I see. 
So yeah, okay. So it's they 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 say they want to go to like a, you know a pure countryside. Where, where what they actually want is 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 a city. Is what you're saying? Right. Okay. Um, so I'm going to read some quotes here. I figure we can kind of react to them. I have a few highlighted sure. because I thought they were interesting. And, and um, the first thing I want to start off with is early on in the essay when he's sort of taking a shot at the prose of Tolkien. Um, and, and really, he, he's he's lumping in like C.S. Lewis and several other authors under this, um, at, at the author of Watership Down. I think he also Richard in Richard there. Adams. Richard Adams, one. yeah. So here we go. He says... The sort of prose most often identified with high fantasy is the prose of the nursery room. It is a lullaby. It is meant to soothe and console. It is mouth music. It is frequently enjoyed not for its tensions, but for its lack of tensions. It coddles. It makes friends with you. It tells you comforting lies. It is soft. So he likens, and then he has a quote from Winnie the Pooh, and then he likens Tolkien to that. Yeah, I want to get your take on on that because yeah. I, so I think he's I think he's right, and that that is um, that is the style of language, and I think he's right. It is a comfort. It is attempting to console us. I, I guess my my fundamental problem with this argument is how one sided it becomes. This is mm-hmm. um, he shows the sort of arrogance. And um, self-righteousness that I feel like only a literary critic can show. If you read literary mm-hmm. criticism that is like tearing down some famous poet or some famous author, and they're so confident in that they are just like skewering this. And, that, and that's how this is written, right? Like it is, it is so confident. Um, and I, I get that that is almost a literary device in and of itself because the more confidence you show, the more effective an argument you're building. Um, but it always is, is a little off-putting to me as someone who tries to write myself and writes myself. It's like, I don't have that level of confidence about anything really related to writing. Like, there's so many valid, interesting pieces of work out there. And to pretend that I understand all of them and all the different ways in which they can be enjoyed by readers is ridiculous. And so mm. I get frustrated with the idea. It's like, yes, he's right. It is comforting. Yes, he's right that it's soft. And that maybe it is telling ourselves lies, but it, it's almost like he's indicting us for like finding a teddy bear to be soft. It's like it's designed to be that, and like how dare we find comfort in it? Well, it's designed to be comforting, you know. And it, 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 and like I understand that like if you all you ever did was surround yourself with teddy bears, then like sure that's a problem, but sometimes mm-hmm. that's what people want. So I think yeah. yeah. I think it, the the essay comes from a place of frustration for people who will only consume Tolkien and become like yeah. fixated on Tolkien. Yeah. Because I felt the same way. I was like, you're you're being so elitist with right. the way that you're approaching stories that you're telling people that they you have they have to listen to your form of escapism yep. in order to to truly escape have the correct escapism right. and like this idea that you're not allowed to like something that is like you said not challenging is. I mean, it's ridiculous. Everyone, everyone at some point in their life isn't is going to come to a point where, where they'll say, "I don't, I want, I want something comforting right now." You know what I mean? Whether it's where they're at in life, where they're at, um, like just mentally at that point. And um, I, I understand how how this story like reinforcing sort of political um, 
like conservative values that that could be damaging to others is a problem but this idea that just because something isn't challenging doesn't mean it doesn't have worth was something that i didn't right. i didn't really you know respond well to it's interesting because like i don't disagree with almost any of the points he makes it's right. i disagree more with the assertion that um it is the only way you know and that mm-hmm. that we should I don't know, like he's making an argument that something that is incredibly popular and celebrated shouldn't be as incredibly popular and celebrated as it is. So he's probably aware that he's only at most going to put a small dent in that popularity. Mm. So it's not like he he is waving a magic wand and destroying Lord of the Rings from from, you know, society. He can't do that. And he knows that the the uh i wanted to say something here that that came up to me in this in this essay is in the way that it changed my perspective on tolkien is because i don't have the background in in children's fantasy like he does i i, I when i my experience and like the things that influence me to to be interested in storytelling are things like tolkien and so i look at tolkien as everyone does i feel like and this is what he's sort of like put like making an argument against when i look at tolkien I'm I'm seeing his writing and it is sort of it's it's not of this era of writers. You know what I mean? It's a it's from a foregone age of people writing a certain sp- type of way. And so since I haven't read a ton of writing in that sort of vein, I f- I feel nostalgic for it. I see it and I'm like, "Wow, this is really unique." And I I feel like maybe he influenced so much. Um and so for me what this essay has done is sort of shifted the way that I think of Tolkien as a writer as like Oh my gosh, he he innovated so many things. He created he created worlds that and no one could ever fathom before. And he created like um, archetypes within within fantasy when that's not necessarily the case right. as far as the essay is concerned. Yeah. And so like going forward, I think he popularized many of them, but didn't necessarily create them. And so like his prose, I I was always been really taken with his prose and I still will be, but I will acknowledge the fact that he didn't necessarily like, he's not the inventor of it as I Mm -hmm. feel like I've probably said in the past. And, um, I'll acknowledge that the, the storytelling devices and the things we talked about this when Arnzen was on our podcast recently, it's that some, some stories are just, just happen to hit at the right time and hit society in the correct way. And I think that's part of what happened with Tolkien and with Lord of the Rings. Yeah. You could make that argument for almost any bestseller. Um, so, yeah, I think, it, I think it applies here as well. So I'm going to read another quote, and this is where he's getting more into the reason that he is um, against this sort of comfort in, in, in our fantasy. So this is about Tolkien. He claimed that his work was primarily linguistic in its original conception, that there was no symbols or allegories to be found in it, but his beliefs permeate the book as thoroughly as they do the books of Charles Williams and C.S. Lewis, who, consciously or unconsciously, promoted their orthodox Toryism in everything they wrote. Now, a reminder for our uh, American listeners that the Tory party is the conservative party of of Britain. Mm -hmm. So he goes on to say, I don't think these books are fascist, but they certainly don't exactly argue with the 18th century enlightened Toryism with which the English comfort themselves so frequently in these upsetting times. They don't ask any questions of white men in gray clothing who somehow have a handle on what's best for us. Um, and so he's saying that, that you know, Lord of the Rings props up this idea, this old idea, and this is something we talked about in our coverage. It, the old white men know what's best in Lord of the Rings, and they're there, and it's like an argue, it's a disagreement between old white men, but like everybody else is just kind of caught up in it, and nobody else is at the table, nobody else is making decisions here, for the most part. 
And that's true. This is an accurate description, I would say, of Lord of the Rings. Right. Which is where, uh, you know, this that's what I mean. Like, I agree. I, I agree with you agreeing with the fact that uh, <laughs> that all of his, you know, he makes good points and he makes points that are that I think are cutting down to the core of what the why it can be dangerous is, is this idea of uh this is like this is what make america great is is fucking built on you know like this idea of of um the status quo you know don't you remember when you were a kid and yeah. and your mom stayed home and your dad did worked and and everything was you know what i mean like they're they're talking about the the nuclear family of like the 1950s and yeah. and 40s and that kind of thing and specifically and like, the british version of that but yes right right yeah. I, i'm just equating it to americans sure. like like sort of the way that that can be dangerous is people sort of always yearning for when they were in power and others were suppressed you know yeah. like like that and that's the whole you know old men in gray cloaks situation mm-hmm. so he goes on i'm gonna read another quote he says the lord of the rings is a pernicious confirmation of the values of a declining nation with a morally bankrupt class whose cowardly self-protection is primarily responsible for the problems england answered with the ruthless logic of thatcherism humanity was derided and marginalized sentimentality became the acceptable substitute so few people seem to be able to tell the difference so i think there is a a distinction there in like what i'm taking to be his read on sort of english conservatism and that's a sentimentality and um yearning for i mean i guess it's not that different but uh, yeah yearning for time past and linking it to the old old england the old english way and how mm-hmm. there's this like ongoing stripe of of this sort of thinking in the society that he's recognizing and he's tying it to lord of the rings and he's saying it's all the same stuff it's the same it's the old man who's unwilling to change and and you know is voting conservative all the time like this is going to be the kind of literature that he props up as the best book you know the best books of all time um, and mm-hmm. and I can see like if you live around this kind of thinking constantly, how it could be really frustrating when you when you start to identify that Lord of the Rings is is sort of sharing sharing that that same DNA. And I mean, it's it's so to me, it's funny to look at like world history and think of the fact that like uh, it's just peaceful countryside and all this stuff. And meanwhile, like go back a few more hundred years, and England is trying to, to you know take over the entire world. They're mm-hmm. constantly colonizing places and trying to take over land right. and all this. Well, stuff. Well, he, he even says that it's like it's a fantasy. It's not even real. It's this like exactly. it's this made up idea. It, it, it's like it's like England forgot about all of that post World War One or two or something, and then sort of just like let's just relax after the wars in the countryside before the Industrial Revolution really kicks off. Everywhere, yeah, and that specific time period is like something that they've latched onto. So he also likens the hobbits to the sort of working class, and it seems like the working class, like conservative types who who don't want to change, you know, just like fondly hold on to a mythological idea of uh, better times, and and so to me, it's like it's liking it to. Um, rural america who often votes republican right in america and Mm -hmm. how it's the same idea it's like you have the ruling class but then you also have the the sort of more common folk and their their hearty wisdom and how they hate elites and they hate the cities and they hate um you know people who read (laughs) and they hate all this stuff like they'd rather just like stick to their simple truths that they believe in 
Um, and he's likening the hobbits to them. He says, like, that's that's the hobbits. And then he goes into this quote, which I'll read one, I'll read another one here. This is not to deny that courageous characters are found in The Lord of the Rings, or a willingness to fight evil, never really defined. But somehow those courageous characters take on the aspect of retired colonels, at last driven to write a letter to the Times, and we are not sure because Tolkien cannot really bring himself to get close to his proles and their satanic leaders, if Sauron and company are quite as evil as we're told. After all, anyone who hates hobbits can't be all bad. Um, so <laughs> he can't help but uh, throw in a little throw in a little jab there. Um, yeah, I mean, he's making a point. It's like, we don't actually see them being evil. We're just told they're evil. We never really get close to Sauron. That was something I pointed out in there. Like, we see uh, Saruman. Um, is the is the the sort of villain we we understand the most in in, in even him it's like he's just kind of evil, um, but yeah we're just told how bad it is and we're shown the effect of it I don't know yeah it's this uh, and then you so you think from the perspective of a hobbit who is in that if we're if we're equating hobbits to conservative sort of uh, common everyday blue collar workers yeah. or something like that. Then who is you know who is the unseen evil force? Yeah, the opposition, right? It's like so the urban to, world, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. So yeah, in that way, it's just propping up this idea that like, and to me, and for me, it's always been like the more exposure that I have in a in a city, like being around more you know culturally different people, and it's like I feel like I feel the opposite is true. You know what I mean? Like you come to realize how safe cities actually are, how forward-thinking people uh are and and like what how what that can lead to in communities and and just all of that and then there's there's some like isolationist part of people who who like to stay in the countryside like they say and then sort of live simply and and that's their way of of staying safe and then because people those people are the other they see them differently they'll never they'll never op- have a door open to even like bridge you know bridge any sort of communication there yeah i don't know i wonder if this is part of the reason why tolkien would constantly push back on these sort of comparisons because he didn't want he's like no no no, it's not about that it's not about anything it's just a story um which like you know it's you can't it it never is it never truly is yeah you're you're part of you is going to be in it you know whether like your beliefs whether whether it's on purpose or not like he like this story is is filled with sort of what i'm sure he felt was the right way to do things and the right way society should be run and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the story is literally about good versus evil. So like you can equ- try to equate in Tolkien's mind, like what he sees as good and what he sees as evil. If you, equ- if you look at like the political structure of, of middle earth and you look at like sort of the roles of certain types of people, certain genders of people, yeah, that sort of thing. Well, that's a good point because simplistic moralistic views of the world in many ways, are going to be tied into a mythologized past, right? Like, when we think back in the day, we think about, like, these these struggles of good versus evil. That's often what is in our folklore. Um, and it's like the simplified versions of the world get, bring us comfort. You know, it's comforting to think of, of the, you know, the good knight besting the evil dragon or what what have you. He is sort of just like pushing back against that. And, and he's, he's trying to say like, there's danger in doing that all the time. And I agree with that, but it's, it's hard to deny the appeal of that kind of story. Cause I can be someone who believes in a more morally nuanced universe 
and understands that rarely, if ever, in our society is it that simple. But I can still read and enjoy a story that's set in a universe where it is that simple. Um, And it doesn't mean I'm going to read it and take it to be a a sort of like how-to um right for my life um yeah i don't know and i think that's where it, that's yeah. the I, like i said i think that's where the essay is specifically sort of focusing it's it's a message on people who fixate on tolkien yeah. as the beacon as the creator as the godfather of all of this whereas like i think I, like both of us agree that there's room for both things there's room for a conservative story about good versus evil it doesn't have to be like you say a how-to book and you can also get into something much more literary that's that's really challenging and and uh you know can change your beliefs on on like you know real world issues or something like that just just giving you a different perspective um it really is the fact like that that's the thing i walk away with is that moorcock is specifically i think trying to have the conversation with people who say that tolkien is the, the you know the messiah of of like modern fantasy right yeah, and and there, you will still find people who who you know will say that sort of thing. Um, and and yeah. okay, so this is sort of referencing back to something we've already talked about. But I did I have this quote highlighted, and I think it's worth reading. Since the beginnings of the industrial revolution, at least, people have been yearning for an ideal rural world that they believe to have vanished, yearning for a mythological state of innocence, as Morris did, as heartily as the Israelites yearned for the Garden of Eden. This refusal to face or derive any pleasure from the realities of urban industrial life, this longing to possess again the infant's eye view of the countryside, is a fundamental theme in popular English literature. And so like you said, I think it's it's the fact that he sees this everywhere, that it is popular, it's popular in the children's books. It's installing this like sense that if you grow up in a city, you should be yearning for the countryside of old even if it isn't mm-hmm. real, like not in the way that it's being mythologized. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, and I can take a lot of things uh, from this to apply to American society as well. You know, like the, the longing, like you said, to make America great again is all about yearning for um, a time in which only benefited a, a certain section of society. And that was spe- specifically straight white men. Um, and the, Everybody else, it, 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 you know, it wasn't beneficial to them. Yet we've we've sort of imbued that into our society to try and convince everyone that this is what we should be yearning for. That this was a great time for all, even though that's a lie. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what he's right. seeing here too, and in, in just in, a, in 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 England instead of in America. Yeah, and it is. I, I totally agree with his argument that it's dangerous to have. The, so if if Tolkien is the the modern godfather of all these stories, the people of the influence is there. You know, people you can see it everywhere. You can see the influence of Tolkien and in, in tons of um, fantasy that's come since. And he makes the argument that you know somebody could take sort of the same framework and make something that's more artistically rich yeah. than Tolkien did. And it, we an, should also point out this essay was written in 1978. Now he has come mm-hmm. back later and at, and updated it, I think with some some more modern references. He, he, moder- he uh, references J.K. Rowling, for example. At yeah, one point. At one, I, 
when I started the essay, it said like 1978, and then I saw J.K. Rowling's like name in in you know within the essay, and I was like, "What the hell's going on here? Is he a time traveler?" Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's sawing into the future. Yeah, he he's updated it a little bit over time, but I think it's mostly just to include some like more modern references to back up what he's saying. Um, yeah, but yeah, I think it is also important to know this this essay wasn't written written five years ago or something. It was 1978. It's a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he does seem to have sort of a derision for american writers who are emulating this style in the sense that he he references it as if they're writing a second language that they barely understand um it, really damning he, and in fact at one point he takes a, a really sort of uh vicious shot at terry brooks uh i would say who is a well-known sort of tolkien-esque fantasy writer um i have a few more quotes i wanted to read so let me get into them um so I sometimes think that as Britain declines, dreaming of a sweeter past, entertaining few hopes for a finer future, her middle classes turn increasingly to the fantasy of rural life and talking animals, and the safety of the woods that are the pattern of the paper on the nursery room wall. If the bulk, if the bulk of American SF can be said to be written by robots, about robots, for robots then the bulk of English fantasy seems to be written by rabbits, about rabbits, and for rabbits. Which I think is kind of funny. I thought it was pretty funny. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty funny. Um, again, just, just, yeah, the idea of talking animals and just the sweet nursery rhymes. It's the stuff of the nursery rhyme wallpaper he's saying. It's a lie. And it's and it's something that yeah. people are, are, are really holding up. Well, and it's not to mention like the countryside and the Pooh reference of Winnie the Pooh reference. Yeah. There's very much sort of like a like the world, the uh, hundred acre wood, right? From from mm -hmm. from Winnie the Pooh is very. It is sort of like, I, and I, did, I feel like I didn't realize this growing up, but it is a very like British sort of like rural society. Yeah. Um, and you've got your like the rabbit is like sort of the farmer and and um, yeah, I don't know. It's There's been a long lot, time since I, I've I read it, but I, yeah, I think I remember that. <laughs> I understand why the comparison is being made and uh, the obvious epic poo title is like a... Yeah, he's saying that that's what that sort of Lord of the Rings is for sure. Yeah. Okay, so here's here's an interesting one. So this is, um, he's engaging with an argument about escapist fiction being like fine and, and then mm -hmm. um, sort of giving a counter argument. So here we go. He is quoting here uh, Lynn Carter... Quote, the charge of escapist reading, says Carter, is most often leveled against fantasy and science fiction by those who have forgotten or overlooked the simple fact that virtually all reading, all music, poetry, and art, and drama, and philosophy for that matter, is a temporary escape from what is around us. So that is the argument that all reading, all it's all escapist. And so when someone calls right. something escapist in a negative way, this is the response to say, it's all escapist, like... Okay, okay. So we established right. that. <laughs> then, mm -hmm. he, then he goes on to say, This, of course, is the response of those deeply and often unconsciously wedded to their cultural presumptions who regard an examination of them as an attack. An unorthodox view, such as that of Tolkien's contemporary David Lindsay, is regarded as a negative view. This, of course, is the response of those deeply and often unconsciously wedded to their cultural presumptions who regard examination of them as an attack. So he's liking this to another author who is is um, he's having an unorthodox take on fantasy, right? And people look at it and often will look at it and say it's negative. It's 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 um, depressing. And I hear this a lot too. Like 
if something is critical of the status quo, it's regarded as negative and depressing. And um, and then that and that's why literary writing is often considered negative and depressing. And they're like, oh, I don't want to be depressed. Mm-hmm. I want to read something uplifting. Often that means I want to read something that that uh, re-solidifies and endorses my status quo, my worldview, and is comforting to me. Right. Right. So he's yeah. he's making the the comparison of um, that that uh, that defense of escapist fiction is ignoring that reality. I guess he's trying to say. In my opinion, this is getting into sort of semantics and like subjectivity and stuff here. So you're saying that all art is escapist, right? But then some is more important escapist than other escapist stuff. So it's like you're telling people how they have to escape. And I think I think if all you consume is sort of surface level escapism, that's a problem. I would I would also say if all you consume is is, you know, deep sort of mind altering uh, perspective changing uh, escapism, if that's if that's all you consume also, I would say that you're probably going to be exhausted. Like, I think that the, you're mentally going to not yeah. be able to handle that on a day to day basis. He like he likens Tolkien's sort of writing and other writers of, of that kind to being um, intellectually equivalent to like bland cabbage. Is his description right. right eating bland cabbage yeah um versus eating more interesting foods and so if you're only eating bland cabbage all the time i understand but if you're aware of the fact that i'm doing this as an escape and this is you know this is my mindless entertainment and i will go back to dive back into more critical thinking and uh that sort of work then i i think there's a place for both things yeah and maybe that's our modern sensibilities and that's like us becoming in his opinion dumber as a culture and and well, it's going to lead yeah. to us being morons and only only doing you know not challenging escapism for the rest of our lives sure let let me read the final paragraph or not the whole paragraph but the uh, the final portion of the last paragraph of this essay where he sort of sums it all up so this is i have to read this part because it's referencing an author we've covered terry pratchett once remarked that all his readers were called kevin he is lucky in that he appears to be the only terry in fantasy land who is able to write a decent complex sentence so there you go there's your little jab at terry brooks Got him. <laughs> also, Terry Goodkind, maybe. I don't know if he was writing back in 78 or, or you know, maybe. I don't know. He, uh, he's not pulling any punches no, for any of the no, people in the literary community. Okay, so he goes on. That, that such writers also depend upon recycling the plots of their literary superiors and are rewarded for this bland repetition isn't surprising in a world of sensation movies and manufactured pop bands that they are rewarded with the lavish lifestyles of the most successful whores is also uns- unsurprising. So again, liking them, them to whores is, is uh, an interesting choice. Okay, here we go. And then finally, quote, to pretend that this addictive cabbage is anything more than the worst sort of pulp historical romance or Western is, however, a depressing sign of our intellectual decline and our free-falling f- academic standards. So again, that is the he is pushing back on the idea that Lord of the Rings is being held up as a great exemplar of literature, right? Like he's it seems like someone somewhere said that like J.R.R. Tolkien is better than James Joyce or better, you know what I mean? And like he he got so mad that he had to go write this essay. <laughs> he represents literature. He's the height of literature and what like yeah. what literature can describe and and that sort of thing. 
And like, I, I, again, like I, some of the things he says, I agree with some of the things I don't, some of the things he says, I don't. And, uh, you know, the idea that people, I see, we see it all the time. People just watch mindless television. They watch, you know what I mean? Like, like things that, that I see is just like the, to be lacking any sort of like artistic expression or anything to take away and, and like change your perspective or anything like that. Um, if that's all you watch. I condemn that. Yeah. I say that that's that you're you're going you that that is sort of what he's talking about. This this and I we also have to say that this is all fairly pretentious to say like oh absolutely it's the decline it's the decline of academics and and education and and all of this is to, like to say that only what you you say is is uh you know academically fulfilling is is so yeah and so uh, anyway this idea that that uh, p- there are people who are only consuming the same thing over and over and maybe there's not a lot of like uh, artistic yeah. artistic merit to sort of sink your teeth into uh, that is definitely going on yeah. but the idea that that um, people aren't aware of it and I, I think that's the main thing is that if you're aware of it and you're willing to approach things challenging some of the time mm-hmm. hopefully that we won't as a society become too stupid and to and lack all academic you know pursuit. I'm going to tie this to one of the the biggest conversations I feel like, you know, is happening right now in film. And I know it's one you have a lot of opinions about. Um, this is like as if someone someone lauded like uh, Avenger, uh, you know, Avengers Endgame and said it was right. the greatest film to be made in the last 20 years. And then some right. some critic was like, like flipped out and wrote an essay about how like Marvel films are deteriorating our ability to recognize good cinema. And like, we've been seeing this sort of thing. Martin Scorsese has come out and said stuff like this. And it's, it's the same argument in many ways, right? Like it's, it's, you know, and it's like, it's not to say that there isn't anything there in those films, but like, they're also not wrong. Like it's not the greatest artistic piece of work ever made, you know, and anyone who says that is, is lying too. So I don't know. The truth is somewhere in the middle. <laughs> like it can still be a good movie without being that. Exactly. Yeah. I think, and of course, like from Scorsese's perspective and, and you know what, I think Tolkien has, has this issue as well. This, this idea that like something like a Marvel movie or Tolkien is swallowing up real estate for everyone else to try to take up to compete in the market and all that kind of stuff. That was true in fantasy for a long time. I think it's starting to get a little better now, but for a long time it was like Tolkien, it was Tolkien, you know, all day, it seemed like. Yeah. And so, you know, that is the same argument. I agree. If if someone was looking for like a one-to-one comparison, it's there. It's it's yeah. the people who are going around saying that these giant blockbusters are the most artistic movies that in the world. That they should be winning best film and and for the, you know, right. Oscars every year and stuff. And and to be honest, like I, I to Moorcock's point, I I genuinely think it's just um lack of exposure. I think that it's if that's the only thing you've ever seen, it very well might be the best thing you've ever seen. Yeah. But just because you haven't seen it doesn't mean it's not better than. And it's not. I mean, there are people who watch other kind of movies, and I think he's getting at more like there are people who watch other kind of movies that challenge their point of view, challenge the status quo, challenge the challenge the comfort of the um, heroic individual, for example, that 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 Marvel represents. Um, And if they see that being built up it's comforting to them and they love it versus a movie that maybe pokes holes in that and challenges that conception and how they're going to find that depressing and so often you get you'll you hear about how like great movies right are all these like depressing movies and he's saying that's because they're challenging the status quo and are viewed as negative um whereas something that doesn't is is viewed as positive 
Um, yeah, uh, I, there's a lot to this this essay. Like I like I said, I walk away with with differences. I feel differently about Tolkien, um, and he made a lot of great points. And there are other things that I definitely don't agree with. But it was it was definitely interesting to read. And and I think in just like the quotes that he posted uh, in his essay and like the comparison points that he had. Um, I feel like I understand prose of the time a little better yeah. because there's so many examples and, you know, it's just a drop in the bucket, but like, at least I somewhat can comprehend where he was at with the comparing sort of yeah. writers of the time. Absolutely. And, um, I'll, I'll once again recommend you actually read the essay, see the quotations he includes. Um, it, it, for the very least, it could be some authors that you might not know about that he might expose you to because, I mean, this guy knows what he's talking about. Um, he's incredibly well read he's 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 got a huge selection in which he's making these comparisons so um i don't know it, it's difficult for me without having read all of the same stuff to engage with each individual one you know yeah um, this is truly a literary critic writing you know full in his power and um in in, in many ways this document feels intended for fellow critics to, to read and respond to um, it doesn't feel like this was tr designed for the masses. Um, so mm -hmm. I, I wonder if that's why I did. I hadn't really heard of his essay until fairly recently um, because I, I, I don't see this being kind of thrown around as like a, 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 on Twitter, like, oh, you know, here, read this essay. It's a complete takedown of Tolkien because it's a literary criticism essay. It's 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 kind of difficult, um, I think, just for the average person to engage yeah. with. But to to reference something that we said recently in our, um, I'm thinking of ending things. The New Yorker, the New Yorker audience would enjoy this essay. I think. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's true. Uh, anyway, I, I we continue to operate somewhere in the middle. We dabble on both sides. Um, I don't know if that's going to be. I, I I personally like that position, but um, I'm not here to tell anyone, you know, they're wrong if they firmly believe. You know, that it's better to to do one or the other exclusively. Like I get it. Um, but yeah, I think, I think this is a good place to leave it um, for this bonus episode. Unless uh, you have anything else you want to add? No, I mean, I, I guess I would just say that like um, diverse reading and, and I, for me, it's always been about, like you said, both. It's always been about consuming everything and then sort of finding, finding things to like in things and finding things to not like in things. And, and then I feel like to, to just like sort of have blanket statements is always scary. Yeah. And that's something that uh, very little about race and gender is mentioned in this essay. Um, there's a little bit here and there, but um, I, I agree. I think um, finding writing from different perspectives, different cultures um, outside of the sort of, you know, cis hetero white man uh, authors is going to be beneficial for this, too, because inherently the perspective is going to be different. Than, right. than if you only read that sort of writing. So there is value to be had there for sure. Um, but we're going to leave it here. Uh, hopefully you enjoyed this. It was a little unusual for us. But um, if you're interested in this sort of thing, um, pass along uh, any sort of uh, essays or anything like that you might have found for older works or your even newer ones. Um, and, if, and if they're interesting enough and they feel like they're media enough, maybe we'll maybe we'll tackle them on future bonus episodes. Um, if this wasn't really your thing, then uh, you can let us know that as well. That's fine. <laughs> and we'll, maybe we won't do this in the end. Um, but we, we thought this was a, a fun one to, to try and get into. Um, but yeah, that's going to be it for this month. Until next time. Thanks for listening.